Knockler Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. The summer issue of the Knockler Report is now up online, available in full to digital subscribers, and physical copies will soon be mailed out. This issue is called Wall Off Trump. In their introduction to the issue, our editors Alejandro Velasco and Joshua Friend-String astutely note that Donald Trump and his administration represent not a divergence from pre-existing U.S. policies toward Latin America and its people, but an intensification of those policies, their, quote, maximum disastrous expression. Today, I'm speaking with report contributor Nara Milinich, associate professor of history at Barnard College, whose article on the summer issue explores the realities of an ICE detention center in South Texas and initiatives to provide legal counsel and support to detainees. Nara, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for being with us. So I understand that you're involved with CARA Pro Bono, which is one of these legal counsel initiatives um, as a volunteer. Could you tell me a little bit about your experience and your work with CARA and maybe about your approach to this article for the report? Absolutely. So I first heard of CARA from a friend who's an immigration attorney. We were She's actually uh, the parent of a um, friend of my son's and we were at a school event, um, almost exactly a year ago. And she mentioned to me that she felt compelled to, uh, volunteer as part of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA. And AILA was encouraging its members to, um, volunteer at, um, the family detention center in Dilly, Texas. Um, and that she had finally decided after debating, feeling like she needed to go, but not sure when she should go. And also being a little bit reticent about going and what she would see there. Um, she, she, she told me that she'd resolved to go. However, she needed a Spanish language interpreter to go mm-hmm. with her. And so I, um, immediately said, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I first went to Dilly, um, in order to interpret for my friend and for other attorneys, um, there, um, I was interested in going, um, I, I don't work on Central American history. I, um, you know, I don't work on migration history. Um, I, uh, you know, a scholar of Chile, um, but I was uh, particularly interested, I mean, both because I've long been following immigration, obviously issues, how can you not follow them at this moment in time? But also, um, I was interested in this whole idea of a family detention center as someone who studies the history of family, um, and the history of children and, and childhood in Latin America. Um, I sort of wanted to see what that looked like. Um, so I had a kind of, um, an interest in the family part of the family detention apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I first went as, um, an interpreter. So your article for the report is, um, a lot of it is just about the situation as it stands in this detention center in South Texas. Um, and the dynamic between these CARA lawyers and volunteers and the ICE officers that work there, mm-hmm. um, what was it like just being there and going in kind of not really having done much work in this field and, and mm-hmm. just kind of going in as a translator? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I have to say I've never been to a jail before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the first thing is what that, what that's like. Yeah. Um, and family detention, it's called, you know, a residential facility uh, for families, but it is in fact a jail. Um, so you have this uh, facility on a dusty road mm-hmm. um, running through the Texas countryside um, the family detention center, um, is down the road from a prison. Um, and when you look at the two from the road, set back from the road, you can't really tell the difference between them. So it is a facility that looks like a jail, um, surrounded by, 
um, you know, fencing, um, and you go through security. Um, as you walk in, you have to be, you know, vetted in advance by ICE. You have to, to submit your, um, your identification, et cetera. Um, and then you're, you're approved, um, by ICE to, um, access their facility. Um, and then you spend your days in these, this, you know, incredibly surreal, frankly, um, environment, um, in these kind of makeshift, um, trailers, which are are alternatively over air conditioned or under air conditioned, um, speaking with interacting and attempting to serve, um, the clients who are, uh, you know, mothers, uh, and their children. Um, so when I was last there in December, uh, you know, which feels like a world away, Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we were in a different, (laughs) a different moment. Um, there are absolutely continuities, um, in what has happened under Trump and what happened under Obama. And I couldn't agree more with the characterization of, um, you know, the detention apparatus as the maximum disastrous expression of, of prior policies, which the editors of this issue, um, you know, coined that phrase. Um, but I do think that there are, um, tangible, um, changes, um, some of them subtle, some of them not so subtle in just the ethos of the detention center. Um, in the inner, the quality of the kind of interpersonal interactions that, um, the pro bono attorneys and volunteers such as myself, um, have with the ICE, um, officials. Um, and so I think there are, uh, there are tangible sort of changes, mm-hmm. um, that, that are underfoot there. Yeah. Yeah. So in the beginning of the article, you open with this scene where, um, the ICE officers have rearranged one of these trailers, um, where the arrangement of chairs, you know, it wasn't like a highly furnished space, but right. it had been designed or, you know, the, the arrangement of chairs had been created specifically with a certain kind of flow with the, with the car, the car volunteers and the detainees, um, in mind and the, and the, I officers had just rearranged it. And the sense that I kind of got was that even though this happened before uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated or or sworn in, um, it was a sort of emboldening to some of these officers who may have have shared politics or at least an attitude about immigration and immigrants um, with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So a sense that like this anti-immigrant rhetoric is kind of um, empowering the ICE officers to change the way that they act toward Mm -hmm. CARA volunteers, Mm -hmm. that they feel supported, Mm -hmm. um, certain behavior feels supported Mm -hmm. uh, in a new way, even if the, the actual policies of the administration haven't really changed that much. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that characterization is right on um, because these changes, um, you know, started to happen even after the election. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could feel them. Um, so one of the stories that we heard from, and this is happening not just in the in the detention center, but I think across the right. Customs and Border Protection and ICE kind of agency writ large. Um, so one of the stories that people were coming in with, women were arriving with in early December, mid-December when I was there, uh, the month after the election was um, the clear a pattern. And this is, again, a pattern that you have to construct from the outside in. Uh, but you hear anecdotes, you hear one anecdote, and then you hear two, and then you hear five, and you start to see that this is this is actually, uh, you know, there's a pattern happening. Mm-hmm. And that pattern was that people were being turned away at points of entry, legal points of entry. So basically what that means is there are two ways you can cross the border. You can show up at a legal point of entry, say, hello, um, my name is whatever, um, and I am fearful of returning to Honduras or Guatemala, um, and I'm asking for asylum. 
Right. And at that point, there's a kind of process that is supposed to kick in in which um, you are granted um, an interview, et cetera, with, um, with an officer. So when, when you enter the country and mm-hmm. you make a claim for asylum, you have to be, the law is that you, is that you are let in mm-hmm. at least for the amount of time that it takes to interview you and to find out if you do have a credible fear of that is correct. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. So under domestic and international law, you have as an asylum seeker a right to pursue your claim. It may never make it to, you know, someone early on may decide that you don't have a credible claim and you're you're deported, but you have the right at least to um, express your fear and be interviewed um, right. to determine the you know credibility of that fear. So okay. the, so one way to come in is through the point of entry, and the other, of course, is to cross. Right. Um, uh, um, you know, um, without documentation or, or, um, authorization. Um, and so what we were hearing is stories of women who are, were presenting themselves at points of entry and being turned away. Hmm. And they were being told things like, oh, we're not taking any more Guatemalan children. No, no, no more Hondurans. We're full up of Hondurans. You know what? There's no work in the United States. Why are you here? Or even more disturbing, didn't you hear we have a new president now? We have a new president now, and he's not letting anyone else in. And in one of the women who who actually gave an affidavit about her experience in this regard asked the person who was taking her affidavit, but I, you know, I didn't understand when he said that because I mean, I, I as I understood it, he wasn't he's not president yet. This was in the end of November, so she was exactly right. Um, these are. Um, completely arbitrary, um, you know, and emboldening as you, as you, uh, mm-hmm. you call it, um, particular officers who are feeling emboldened and feeling supported, um, and feeling like their agenda is going to be defended from above. And I think that that is precisely what is changing also inside, um, the detention facility, um, this subtle and not so subtle emboldening of, um, of ICE officials vis-a-vis, um, the CARA volunteers and vis-a-vis, of course, the women in the facility as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that they've done, for example, recently is in recent months is impede access increasingly to legal counsel. So there've been a couple of sort of, um, disputes, I would call them, between um, CARA lawyers and ICE regarding how those lawyers have uh, sought to defend the rights of their clients. There was a particular case in which um, a uh, CARA um, employee requested a mental health evaluation for a uh, client uh, in detention. Um, and afterwards, ICE took issue with the fact that she had um, requested this mental health evaluation, uh, which the lawyer believed was necessary to defend the claim of this woman to asylum. <clears throat> and so at that point, ICE barred her from further entry into the facility. Uh, and there have been a whole series of other more subtle um Impositions at one point, well, of course, the chairs, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the chair episode that you mentioned, an ICE official, um, you know, arbitrarily rearranged the furniture um, out of, I don't know, peak. Um, mm-hmm. There have also been uh, currently um, they are restricting the lawyers to certain rooms in this trailer. Um, children are no longer allowed in the you know in the to hang out in the playroom while their mothers are being prepped for their credible fear interviews. So there's a whole series of just incredibly you know um, senseless and utterly arbitrary, subtle but nevertheless significant. Um, 
um, measures that ICE has taken to um, impede CARA's work. Um, and so this has now, interestingly, in the last few weeks, um, inspired a lawsuit um, on the part of various organizations under the CARA rubric um, that are have, have filed a complaint regarding um, access to legal counsel. Mm-hmm. So the detainees do not have a right to legal counsel, which is why the vast majority of people in immigration detention centers do not have lawyers. Um, they can't afford them and they do not have a right to, you know, public defenders or something like that. Um, but ICE is not allowed to um, impede access to legal counsel, which is what they're doing. So so there's now a, a tussle going on there. And incidentally, once again, you know, the, the detention center is a microcosm for what's going on in the country. There are other examples of ICE attempting to, um, you know, create obstacles for access to legal counsel. Um, among immigrants in other um, in other contexts. So an immigrant rights group in the Pacific Northwest was served a cease and desist order because it was helping um, people with paperwork, um, immigrants with paperwork, et cetera, this kind of thing. So in, that is to say, this the, these little incidents happening in the detention center, I think, are broadly emblematic of, a, of an emboldened ICE. Um, and again, these, you know, we're, we're all focusing on the executive orders and the changes in law and, and, um, and you know, legislative proposals. And those are all very important. But there are also other kinds of changes that happen um, in, in, in kind of incredibly arbitrary ways, but that have to do with interpersonal relationships that have to do with kind of arbitrary policy changes that don't require a law. Mm-hmm. You know, or don't require an executive order. They require um, a, a culture, an ethos that um, permits and indeed perhaps um, foments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has been the theme of the of the past year is the violation of norms rather exactly. than laws. Exactly. I and mean, these things aren't kind of concretely <clears throat> defended by any kind of legal framework. Mm-hmm. It makes it very much very much reliant on the existence of a culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you mentioned these medical. Um, evaluations and um, it also kind of leads me to think about you know if 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 you need an evaluation to to determine to uh, prove that someone's fear of persecution fear of attack in their home country is credible the the experience of um, being in jail and one's only offense having been legal entry into the country because if you come at a legal entry point as an asylum seeker you are in fact not illegally entering the correct. country that's correct um. So, so these women, these families are, are in jail having not committed a crime. Clearly the environment is, is an oppressive one, is incredibly stressful. Um, how, how are people, you know, how are, what kind of facilities are there to deal with the stress of being in that place? And I mean, obviously we talked, um, before we started recording about the case of, uh, Samira Hakimi, I think was her last name. Um, the Afghani woman who attempted suicide recently and and you said was Mm -hmm. released, but you met her Mm sister-in-law while you were there. And, you know, this is one sensational and, and, Mm -hmm. um, distressing story. in in an environment where there are many like it Mm -hmm. um but she definitely is indicative of of just kind of the the distressing and depressive environment Mm -hmm. that these people are having to stay in Mm -hmm. for periods of time much longer than they are legally allowed to be detained Mm -hmm. yes so um this is definitely um an issue and one that activists have really you know anti-detention and anti-family detention activists have really seized on which is um, not just that, you know, it's unethical and um, senseless to incarcerate people guilty of nothing other than trying to save 
their their lives and that of their family members, um, but that detention itself has a whole series of um, negative effects on the mental health and well-being of people, um, and as studies show, especially children. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one of the kind of big, you know, anti-detention arguments that being that's being made is that detention is especially bad for children. Um, and in fact, the AMA, the American Medical Association just came out the other day with a press release, um, and a a position statement about the, about family detention, condemning family detention in precisely these terms. Um, the American Association of Pediatricians, I believe it's called also has, has done the same. So, um, sort of children's health advocates have taken this issue on, which is, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, but there's no question. I mean, these are you know, people who have suffered um, often horrific violence, witnessed or been victims of, um, you know, just, you know, unimaginable um, violence at home that caused them to leave in the first place, but they've then, um, you know, experienced this extraordinarily dangerous and equally traumatic um, uh, uh, journey um, through Central America, uh, Mexico, and sometimes they come from from even farther away, only to find themselves in detention. And one of the things that I found really interesting in speaking with um, with women in this detention center is you you hear a lot about the the um, you know in the media about the dangers and traumas of the of the journey to the United States, you know, mm-hmm. this, the, the famous La Bestia, the beast, the train ride, um, the, you know, the perils that stalk people as they move through and, um, you know, across Mexico or Guatemala or Mexico, whatever. Um, and these are, these are important stories, but when you're talking to women who are sitting around a table filling out their paperwork, actually what they're dwelling on, perhaps because it's the most recent trauma that they've experienced, is not the trauma in their home country, which you have to ask about later in their credible fear interview prep. It's not the the trauma of the journey. It's the trauma that happens to them after they cross the border. Mm-hmm. And so you hear time and again, largely unsolicited from women about what happens in the hours and days after they cross the border in the United States and how they are subjected to um, experiences and conditions that um, I think, you know, uh, um, experts agree amounts to torture. Um, so even before they get to the family detention center where they meet Kara, um, they're warehoused in these infamous um, spaces, um, which the women call yeleras, um, ice boxes, um, which are these kind of cement bunkers, um, probably hundreds of which exist all along the border. Very few people have had gained access to these facilities. Um, there is, you know, there are various now lawsuits about treatment in these facilities, um, but they're, they're, you know, they're horrific. There are people sleeping on floors, um, children having, you know, ch- food taken out of their hands if they don't eat it fast enough, people deprived of water, um, air conditioning ramped up, which is why they're called yeleras, um, ice boxes ramped up purposefully in order to make people um, cold and uncomfortable and unable to sleep on the cement floors. I mean, these are just incredible. You hear these stories and, you know, you, you think, my God, you know, this is, they're like concentration camps. Um, and I remember distinctly a conversation with a Brazilian woman, um, who was talking about this, uh, experience. And she said to me, you know, she, she used the word tortura 
to to describe them. Um, that was her word. Um, and I, I was so struck by, you know, sitting in this South Texas detention center talking to this um, Brazilian woman. Um, and, you know, I teach modern Latin American history, and we spend a lot of time talking about torture when we get to um, <clears throat> the Cold War dictatorships in places like Brazil and Argentina and Chile. Um, and, you know, we talk about torture as a form of, you know, statecraft, et cetera, and the, and the political uses of terror. And to have a Brazilian woman sit across the table from you and use that word to describe what has happened to her after she's crossed the U.S. border is really impactful. <laughs> Let's put it yeah, that way. There's the idea of desaparecidos, too. I mean, Absolutely. the idea of a government disappearing people, it's like... You can't help but think about these people whose families are probably waiting for them or families back home are waiting to hear from them. We've safely arrived and they just disappeared into this limbo. Absolutely. So they're in this, uh, you know, in these facilities um, and often unable to communicate either with people back home who have no idea what's become of them or people in the U.S. And, you know, one of the most... one of the most fun things that you get to do as a volunteer um, at CARA is, you know, when people have uh, express um, fear, depression, um, et cetera, uh, about anxiety, about not having been able to um, talk to their their family, um, sometimes you let to get, you get to let them use the phone. And, you know, you'd think you had just, you know, given them a lottery ticket yeah. and um, uh, <laughs> a house with a white picket fence because you've allowed them to use the phone for two minutes to call their mom. Um, um, or, you know, or their brother or their husband or whoever it may be. Um, and it's, it's a very odd, um, experience to have as a human being to, um, to be, uh, shown such extraordinary gratitude for such a stupid thing, like letting such someone a make a phone call. Exactly. Yeah. For, for yeah. letting someone use a phone call, you know, make a phone call. Um, so yeah, people are in limbo. They, I think they do have access to phone, you know, they may use the phone, but nobody has any money to to make phone, you know, you don't get to use the phone for free unless you happen to be in the car trailer. Um, So you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a sense that uh, there's a kind of disappearance happening. Um, Again, emblematic of what's happening, not just in, you know, among refugee detention, but more broadly in the immigration detention kind of apparatus, Mm -hmm. the way people get spirited away by ICE agents in unmarked cars. <clears throat> who then later deny that they're in custody or refuse to confirm whether or not they're in custody. So the credible fear interview is kind of the turning point in this process. It's the, it's the thing upon which all of the energy is focused um, yes. leading up to it. And then how it turns out pretty much determines whether or not a person's able to move forward mm-hmm. um, or if they're going to get deported. What does CARA do to help people prepare for this? What are the kind of criteria, I mean, it has to be kind of difficult to prove mm-hmm. that you are afraid for your life if most of your possessions have been mm-hmm. confiscated mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's difficult to prove a spoken death threat or something right. like that. Right. So the credible fear interview is your, is, as you say, your kind of ticket out of jail. Uh-huh. Um, it is what gets you sprung from family detention and it doesn't get you anything more than that. All it does it gets you is your freedom. But at that point you are able to and permitted to pursue your asylum claim in an immigration court, which of course then takes potentially years, but at least you're out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, CARA's aim is to provide legal counsel and to prepare people for this all important CFI, as it's called, credible fear interview that um, people that the women must have with an asylum officer. And over the course of that interview, they are asked a series of questions um, 
Why are you fearful of returning to your country? What do you think will happen if you return? Um, and they're, they're asked essentially to tell their stories. Um, at the, the stage of the CFI, they do not have to present proof per se. Okay. So you don't need to show, you know, the forensic doctor's report that shows that you really did have your arm broken by your husband. You don't have to show, um, you know, uh, proof that your house was shot up by the Mada in your neighborhood. Maras, which are uh, the word for um, gangs. Um, you merely, and that's why I think it's called a credible fear interview, have to come across as a credible witness, um, which is a bizarre, bizarre, um, you know, um, creation of the immigration system. Um, there are lots of reasons why someone might not come off as credible and might be, um, unable to tell their story. Yeah, ranging, being a woman might be, I'm sorry. Exactly. <laughs> uh, one of them might be that, uh, indeed, uh, you're, uh, talking about, um, sexual violence, which is extraordinarily common and a huge piece of this mm-hmm. puzzle. Um, and you're being asked by, uh, a man that you've never met before to talk about the details of, of these, um, of these um, violations, and in fact, that's that's actually a problem that people understandably, um, you know, your first impulse in an interview like that is to withhold the worst, right, or the things that are most difficult um, or traumatic to talk about. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, doing that then later down the, the line can kind of prejudice your case because if you, you didn't mention a rape in the, your credible fear interview and three years hence as your asylum claim is wending its way through the immigration courts and you make a statement to your lawyer, if you're lucky enough to have one, about, um, you know, a rape, um, the judge can say, well, why didn't you mention that the first time around, right? So this is the logic um, by which the system operates. So one of the things that lawyer the lawyers explain to women is no matter how painful it is, and I apologize for asking you um, to talk about this, but this interview is your ticket out of here. And it's important to tell the truth. It's important to be as um, comprehensive as possible to mention different, you know, incidents, or there are often multiple reasons why people immigrate, um, an abusive husband, but also gang violence. Um, very often there are kind of, you know, multiple pieces, um, and people will talk about one, but not the other. So they're encouraged, um, to talk about at least to mention multiple pieces. Um, there are certain kind of standard questions, um, that reflect asylum law. For example, um, I understand that you were fearful and in danger in Tegucigalpa, but why couldn't you move to another town right. um, elsewhere in the country? And so, you know, the answer to that might be something like, well, it depends on the situation, but um, I don't have any relatives um, anywhere else. Or I tried to do that and he came after me again. Um, or the Maras are, you know, nationally present. Um, so that wasn't, you know, and that wasn't a possibility. Um, so, you know, helping people to understand that the asylum officer may know nothing about Honduran geography, for them to understand how far away something is or how the Maras operate, these kinds of um, helping helping women to tell tell their story in a way um, that an asylum officer can understand it without, you know, a great knowledge about the, the, you know, the cultural and social context and geographic context that they're coming from. These are the kind of things that the lawyers um, help people do. And, to, you know, that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of the interview itself, but then also just understanding the broad process because no one ever really explains it. Okay, you're going to do this interview. And then if you pass, 
you're going to be given this piece of paper that tells you to show up in immigration court. And in order to get out of here, you're either going to have to pay a bond, fianza, or you're going to get an ankle shackle. And this is how this works. So these kind of just basic, here's, here's how it, here's how it functions. Mm -hmm. So part of what the lawyers do is, you know, is, is kind of, um, explaining something about how asylum law works. Um, most, you know, American citizens don't understand asylum law. Um, and for that matter, <laughs> lawyers themselves are often flummoxed by, um, the content of law. So it helps to understand a little bit about the law in order to best represent your, your case. Yeah. So there's that piece of what they do. And I think there's also a kind of existential piece that the lawyers also provide, um, and volunteers. And that is to, at the very first time that these, that women filter into this trailer seeking legal counsel, um, they're given, they're given information that Kara is present and that if they wish to, they can speak with, um, with the lawyers. Um, we don't know what percentage of women actually access the legal counsel. This it's, probable that the vast majority do. Um, but we have no idea because they never have, you know, complete statistics about who is even in the facility, et cetera. But the first time these women come in, um, you know, you sit down with them and explain, um, hello, welcome to the United States. You are often the very first person to welcome them. I'm sorry that you are here. I do not work for the U S government. I do not work for ice. I am uh, working for an independent, uh, legal, um, organization. Our, um, goal is to help you understand where you are, how the system works. And our broader goal is to help not just you and the woman sitting next to you, but to, um, work to abolish, um, a system that incarcerates people who are seeking safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you, you explain that, um, and explain that we're your ally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and so that's part of also what, what, you know, what the story is, um, is, is the kind of, uh, I don't want to call it human connection because that sounds really corny, but just, um, helping women to understand that they have allies. Um, Yeah. I mean, that everyone in this country isn't geared towards getting them out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And I mean, it's nice also to hear that Kara has this kind of ability to operate within the existing system as it is, and they're working with what they've got, but they're also had their eye towards this long-term goal of of ending this system that criminalizes people who haven't even broken the law in the first place. That's right. So they're engaged in all kinds of advocacy work um, that can really only be done on the ground, as mm-hmm. it's called. So people who are in the facility who are noticing, Jesus, there are a lot of women coming through who are talking about being turned away at points of entry. You know, that's often the first um, inkling for people in, you know, uh, you know, advocates in DC to know something is up. We're seeing really low numbers. We're seeing high numbers. We're seeing lots of people with the point, you know, point of entry violations. Um, so they're on the ground, they have their ear to the ground. They're looking around, they're listening to stories, they're looking for patterns. And then when they're spotting issues, um, they're taking action. Okay. We're going to take affidavits from women who have been turned away at a point of entry. And then, you know, um, the immigration advocates in Washington then in turn, um, you know, uh, get the ear of a congressman to complain mm-hmm. about this, or they file a lawsuit or they hold a press conference or they have a hearing, you know, give voice to and publicize, um, <clears throat> whatever the latest, you know, violation might be. Mm-hmm. So that's part of also what they're they're doing this advocacy piece. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, just to wrap up, I know that we probably have a lot of listeners who are interested in helping with this, but who can't quite make the move to Dilly or who don't have a law degree. Um, what do you think people who care um, about this issue and who want to want to help can do? That's a great question. So I'm not a lawyer, right? <laughs> um, um, but there was plenty for me to do. Right now in Dilly, the numbers are eerily low. Um, nobody's quite sure why the numbers of, of, of incarcerated women and children has, has dipped. Um, I think their latest numbers are maybe 300, 200, um, from a maximum of more than 2000 people. Nobody's quite sure why. And that's, you know, one of many puzzles of, you know, what's going on. So I think for at least this summer, um, Dilly is taken care of in terms of its volunteer, um, brigade, but, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, by, by September, it may be up to, um, up to 2000 again. So I would encourage uh, listeners first to keep their eye on CARA, Mm -hmm. um, and to look up, um, CARA's website, um, and to monitor, um, what's going on there. Um, if you're able to go to Dilly, um, it's a week long commitment. Um, you can go as a lawyer, but also as a volunteer, or perhaps you, you know, they need Spanish speaking volunteers, but also Portuguese speaking volunteers. Um, there are, um, large numbers of Brazilians coming through and also especially Haitians, okay. um, Haitian Creole speakers, um, they're in kind of constant need. Of, of interpreters. Um, there are also people who don't speak Spanish and who aren't lawyers, but are doing other kinds of paperwork, um, for them. Right. Um, beyond Dilly, um, there are, I mean, one of the things that Cara has done is, um, sort of, um, perfect a model that then can be copied elsewhere. And in fact, there are now initiatives underway to, um, expand this model of legal representation within, um, immigrant, um, prisons, um, to other facilities in the country. And so there is uh, already an initiative up and running at the Stewart detention facility in Lumpkin, Georgia, which is one of the more notorious immigration, uh, detention facilities where there was recently uh, a death of an inmate. Um, and that the idea again is, is to spread, uh, spread this model. Um, so I encourage you to look, um, also look up that, um, initiative, which is run by the Southern Poverty Law Center or in conjunction with SPLC. Um, but maybe you're not able to take a week, um, and fly to Georgia or Texas to do this kind of work. In that case, I would suggest that pretty much no matter where you live, there are immigrant rights groups, um, that are in need of your uh, language expertise, if you speak Spanish or Portuguese or or Haitian Creole, um, um, and probably need other kinds of skills as well. Um, Certainly where I live in New York, that's true, but it's true um, everywhere. There are all kinds of legal um, services for, you know, unaccompanied minors, asylum seekers, and others. Um, And those organizations are working on shoestrings and are always looking for um, interpreters, um, for example. Um, so even if you're unable to go for a week, um, uh, to another state, you may well be able to find, um, opportunities, uh, closer to home. Um, and I think that in, in that regard, um, you know, your job, my job as an interpreter in Dili was not just to, um, interpret, um, in the sense of translate, it was really to bear witness. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that's really, um, the work of people who, you know, who aren't on the front lines, who are not, um, 
whose whose jobs um, or lives don't you know they're not lawyers, but they're they're not activists. They're not the frontline activists on the street. But you can still, I think, be a really critical, small but critical piece of yes. this um, of this puzzle. Yeah, I think in these times it's really important that we all um, we all acknowledge that there are multiple ways to be an activist. That if you can't, if you lack the ability to go to the streets and to, and to protest, you can still find a way. Um, and a way that's particular to your skill set. Exactly. You can contribute in a way that's really unique and, and fulfilling for yourself. And I think you've clearly done that here. Um, and I want to thank you for being thank with you. us and sharing your experience. Thank you so much. That was Nara Milinich, Associate Professor of History at Barnard College. And this has been Nakla Radio. Be sure to check out our website, nakla.org, for links to the Southern Poverty Law Center and CARA, as well as old episodes of the podcast and original content on the site. NARA's article for the NACLA report is also available on nakla.org, and I strongly encourage you to check it out. While you're on the website, you should also subscribe to the NACLA report and make a contribution to NACLA to support the podcast, the website, and the magazine. As always, you can like us at facebook.com slash NACLA and follow us on Twitter at NACLA, that's N-A-C-L-A. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our web editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocho. (laughs) 